First Peter chapter five. If you've been with us, you know that we've been quoting out of First Peter chapter five the entire series, and we're actually going to take a look at that passage tonight. I should also say too that um, if you've been tracking, at some point I said this was going to be a five-week series. We're actually going to make it six. So there's going to be one more week next week. Um, we're going to extend that, um, and I'm super pumped because how I'm going to do it is with a teaching out of Revelation. And so we're going to be taking a look at the end times and the last time that Satan deceives people. Um, And so if you want to just read ahead for fun, you can read Revelation 19, 20, and 21 this week um, because we're going to be there next week. So this is not the finale. Next week's the finale. Um, I'll give away the the, the title of the last one. Tonight's going to be Schemes. We're taking a look at Divide and Devour. Next week is going to be Schemes Overcome. Okay, and so it is going to be more of a true finale where we don't end on a scheme. We end on the consummation of all things. And so um, definitely put in your books. We got one more week in schemes, if that's okay with you. If it's not, too bad. So it's happening either way. So Yes, yep, great question. So if you haven't been here, um, don't worry. Each sermon is, is pretty independent. I'll, I'll wrap, I'll, I'll kind of bring you up to speed on what we've done real fast, but they are online. So you can go to the website, GCCTO. Um, you can pull that up right now at the end of the sermon. I'm actually going to um, press everyone to go on the website for a reason. You'll see. Um, and so you might as well load GCCTO or just Google Godspeed Calvary Chapel, pull it up. It's mobile friendly. Um, and so you can go on there, go to the sermons. You can find the Sunday night series and all the schemes. And Chris usually gets them uploaded by like Tuesday or Wednesday. And so um, this one will be up on Tuesday or Wednesday. And we've got all our previous sermons archived there. So good question. So on that, we're going to be, as I said, in First Peter 5. Let me pray real fast, um, and we will get started. Jesus, just um, ask that, that you would continue to instruct me as you've, as you've been instructing, um, but that you would also enable me now to, to, to teach and um, for all of us to hear from you tonight, myself included, that we would be open to uh, the pressing on our hearts from you. I pray that we would be scored, we would be open, Holy Spirit, that we would be excited um, for a calling on our life, um, not just to learn about you, but to know you. And so I pray that tonight would be um, for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And so we, we give tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we've been in this series now called Schemes, and we've been taking a look at some of the primary tactics that the devil uses. This comes out of 2 Corinthians 2.11, which says that in order that Satan may not outwit us, we are to be, we are not to be unaware of his schemes. And so this teaches us that we have a literal enemy and he is literally plotting our destruction. He is not a supernatural force. He is a created being. He is not a set of morals. He is not a moral parameter. He is not a scare tactic used by the church to keep people in line. He is a created angel that rebelled against God, was cast out of heaven by God with a third of the angelic rank, and has now scattered on the earth in the form of Satan, which is a Hebrew transliteration for adversary and his demons. Satan is a powerful creature. He is a powerful created being. Angels are 
unlike us. They are set apart different than us. They are strong, wise, holy, and incredibly powerful beings. And Satan did not lose his might in his casting out of heaven. He is now simply using it for evil, that which God would intend for good, he would intend for for evil. And so we have a literal enemy. He and his demons, keep in mind, Satan is created. He can only be in one place at one time. And so don't give him an attribute that's only for God, which is omniscience or omnipresence, that he knows everything or he can be everywhere. He can't because he's created. He's not creator. He was created by Jesus as an angel and cast out. And so chances are you're not encountering Satan himself. You're, you're, you're encountering one of his minions, one of his demons who is replicating his primary tactics. He has trained the demonic ranks in his tactics. He, he, he uses and proliferates these tactics through his ranks. And as we've said, this isn't to steal the salvation of anyone. The Bible says he who's been placed in the father's hand, no man can remove. So he doesn't deploy these tactics in order to steal your salvation. He deploys these schemes to steal the joy amid your salvation. He can't take it. If you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not lose you. I have that faith in that God that says, I will not be overcome. And so it's not that he can steal your salvation from you, but it's that he can certainly steal your joy that comes from your salvation. And so we've been course correcting and we've not just been looking at the schemes of Satan. We've been taking a look at the promises of God that over come the schemes of Satan. And that's why I can't wait for next week when we wrap it up with schemes overcome, because I want you to see that the entire story has been written. And as Christians, we know the future and revelation will show us how Jesus ultimately consummates the deceptive tactics of Satan. And next week we will read through it. There will be a lot of reading, less speaking, and it's going to be amazing because I love Revelation for all its chaos and crazy. I love Revelation and what Jesus does in it. But we have a literal enemy. It says that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. Everyone knows C.S. Lewis? Christian philosopher, theologian, writer, author, amazing mind, used by God for God's glory, would write these epic books, these epic essays, these epic articles. He would often take literary devices and and use theological application. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is about a head demon training a junior demon on how to deceive people. And I wanted to pull this out real quick because he says that there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devil's. He says, there's, there's two equal and opposite errors which you can make when it comes to the topic of devils. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He says, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And I'm gonna come back to this a little bit later, but you need to know that the Bible says you have a literal enemy. And if we believe in a a literal, actual God, it makes sense logically that we have the capacity to believe in a literal, spiritual enemy. 
And so you get sects of Christendom that want to preach about God, but disregard the works of Satan. We're not allowed that. One of the primary advances of the Bible is not only describing the enemy, but the ways in which he stirs among your life. Again, not to steal your salvation, but to steal your joy, the joy of your salvation. And in week one, we took a look at the lie. We went all the way back to Genesis. That's why next week we're going to go all the way to Revelation because I love the whole Bible. We went all the way back to Genesis and we took a look at that primary lie that Satan believed himself that got him kicked out of heaven, that he could be like the most high. And then it was the lie that he slithered into the garden and fed to Adam and Eve and said, really? And he snickered about it. He said, really? Did God say that? Really? All this on a tree? Really? He doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat of that fruit, you can be like him. And so we see that sin is always the trading of paradise for a piece of fruit. And so we took a look at the lie. Again, these sermons are online if you want to go back. In week two, we took a look at temptation. We took a look at the fact that Satan loves to draw you. He loves to lure you. Jesus loves to woo you, but Satan loves to lure you. And he loves to bring you to that line of temptation. And we we learn that Jesus has stood on every line of temptation you have ever encountered. So Jesus doesn't know about this one. He does. And most of us get uncomfortable thinking about that. I know, I know seasoned Christians, adults, pastors, elders, choir leaders, that when I say Jesus has stood on the line of sexual temptation, he has almost thought about a woman incorrectly. Never sinned, but he walked up to that line like, well, the Bible doesn't say that. It says, tempted in every way. Has anyone ever been tempted to think about the opposite sex in a sexual way? Yes, then so too had Jesus. Without sin, never crossed the line but tempted in every way. Unlike any false God of any false religion, Jesus stands on that line next to you and says, I know what this is like. I've been here. That's why I can be your great high priest. And the false gods of all the other religions can't. They don't know what this feels like without sin. But I stood on this line with you and he promises to be there. And the Holy Spirit says, I will be there with you and I will be there in you to help resist temptation. But, but he lures us in with temptation so that once we cross it, he can do the one-two punch of accusation. And that was week three. And that's where a fight goes from standing to the ground. And that's when he gets on top of you in that guard position and starts pummeling you. He wanted you to be tempted. And once you executed that temptation, then he does a 180. He jumps on you and starts raining down fists of accusation and says, see, you're worthless. You did it before. He says, it's not that bad. And then you do there. He says, you're awful. Jesus can't have any of you. Jesus wouldn't want any of you. Look what you've done. And so he starts to call into question our position of righteousness and he starts to just pummel us with accusation. And last week we took a look at counterfeit faith. We took a look at the fact that, that Satan, I think a lot of us just relegate his work to, well, he's out there creating atheists. We saw very clearly that he, he, he is equally pleased with creating counterfeit faiths where you believe something about the personal work of Jesus, but, but it's, it's contrary to the person and the work of Jesus and what he has said and what the gospel means and what has been accomplished. And so he's not just content with unbelief. He's all the excited about a counterfeit belief. And we took a look at counterfeit faith. And tonight we're going to take a look from First Peter 5 at a tactic that I'm calling divide and devour. 
And I would submit to you that this is the scheme that amplifies all the others. It's not the foundation, it's the amplification of all the others. Because listen, the other schemes are so much more effective if he can just get in a room alone with you, right? If he can just get you isolated, those lies are easier to be fed. Those temptations are easier to be lured by. Those accusations rain down harder. That counterfeit faith, that question of faith, he can build you up in a false faith better if you're by yourself. And one of his desires is to divide and devour. As I said, he is a roaring lion, not a domestic house cat seeking to annoy you. He is a roaring lion seeking to devour you and destroy you. And so I'll give you the end up front so that if you tune me out after this, I just want you to know what my goal is. My goal is to preach and teach into your heart the desire for biblical community. The desire for biblical communion. Some of you say, we're here, okay? You don't have to waste breath. We're here. I'm, I'm at church, Mark. There's more to be done than that. Perhaps last week shook you because perhaps some of us are are dealing with myself, as I admitted, we're dealing with areas of unbelief where we're sitting here thinking one thing, but the reality of what God has said about it has shifted our perspective. And so maybe you're here religiously sitting in a church in these walls, but you have no true desire for biblical community. This is your checkbox for the week. Mom, I did it. I'm I'm, I'm at college on my own. I'm, I'm... Look, I do the church thing. Pastor, no worries. I go to Sunday night. I do this, I do that. And so I want to preach and teach into your heart this need for biblical community. But I have to start with the fact that community does not begin with us, nor does it end with us. Just need you to know that. Doesn't begin with me. Doesn't end with me. Doesn't begin with you. Doesn't end with you. Doesn't begin with this church. It doesn't begin with Jesus's church as a whole at all. It begins, it has every implication for us, but it begins with God. In the beginning, God. And that the word is Elohim. Okay? How many of you went to a university? Anyone? Raise your hand. Elohim means unified diversity. Where do you think we get the word university? Oh, you're making that up. No, I'm not. I'm not. University system was a faith foundational system, by the way, in America, okay? But unified diversity, it's the fact that many can be one. We're talking about a triune God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are but one God in unified diversity. Also, singular plurality. People are like, how does that work? I'm not exactly sure. Can't wait to ask Jesus. But I can tell you that Elohim means unified diversity, that there are three separate persons, equally God in the Trinity, and he did not create us for fellowship. It's one of the lies in Christendom is that God needed friends. So he created the earth. Turns out God was in perfect fellowship before us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect community, in perfect unison, in perfect complementary submission, in perfect communication and relation and love and grace and, and, and everything that is good, they already were. And he created us to reflect that. Community is one of the ways in which we reflect not only the triune God, 
that we can have unified diversity within the body, but it's one of the ways that we point to heaven as we're gonna see next week on earth. I don't know if you thought about this. Some of you are like, this is a chore. This is supposed to be practice for heaven. How's that going? Anyone feel like they're practicing for heaven, right? That's, that's, that's worship. John will tell you like, heaven kicks off with a worship ceremony and then a wedding party. I don't know if you've read the book. Don't wait for the movie, Right? Like the whole thing starts with worship. We're going to see it next week. And it goes into a wedding party. I wish we partied more at the church. I'm going to talk to some of the elders about that. Just practicing elders. Let's get a party going. For what? Why are we partying? To practice for heaven. Okay. We're supposed to be doing that. People are like, your church parties? Yeah, dude. We can't wait for the real deal. But we're practicing now. Okay. Good food and, and, and drinking. We, we practice when we worship. How many of you think about that? We practice at sports and at music and at theater. We practice. We put our heart into that. We go home exhausted. We come here, myself included, just kind of worship like this. I do the same thing. I'm terrible. I hate my voice. You couldn't pay me to listen to my sermons. I, I, I just can't stand my voice. And when I sing, it's like awful. And I have my mom and sister are vocal performance majors with like PhD. I'm like, oh, you're singers. I'm not. But worship is practice for heaven. Community is practice for heaven. Look, if you don't like these people, you're going to hate heaven. You don't like diversity on the earth, you're going to hate heaven. It says all nations. Now, these people are all weird and different than me. Oh, you're going to hate heaven. Because we're still going to be unique, weird people in heaven. I don't know if you know that. We are. We don't lose everything and come be some weird, like, monotone ghost. Right? People looked up into heaven in the Bible and they knew who people were. Why? Because they still looked like themselves. Like, that's Elijah. How do they know that? Because they knew what Elijah looked like. Jesus rose from the grave, resurrected. They knew it was Jesus. How? He still bore the marks and he was in his glorified body. I think I might still have a birthmark on my face in heaven. I don't know. I seriously, I might. It might be one of the ways you're like, oh, you did a a lot of yelling on earth. I remember that. (laughs) Black shirts and just weird, you know? But I remember you, you know? It's not like we just become monotone in no ones. We're individuals. That's how he created us. That's how we glorify him. And in community, it's one of the ways that we point to that. We point to heaven, this, that whether it's a small group or a big group, as we're going to see in the text, we're pointing. When the church was birthed, that's what it was for. It was for glorifying God, for showing how God reflects his, himself in his people. And so I want to preach and teach into your heart this need for biblical community. I wrote this down. Here's the good news you often hear at church, and it's true. God has a plan for your life. Don't you love that? Like, yeah, that's why I came to church. God has a plan for me. Here's what you don't hear often. So does Satan. So does Satan. You think he doesn't have a counter plan? You think he's going to step onto the football field not having studied? Not having put a playbook together? Not having trained his team on how to take the others out at the knee? God has a plan for my life. So does Satan. Oh, balance. It's not balanced ultimately. But he sets up a precaution for this war that's going to wage. He sets up a precaution. He's a good dad. He doesn't say, go figure it out. See what happens. Oh, didn't see that one coming. Oh, you should have studied. You should have thought, oh, he doesn't. That'd be a bad dad. He's a good father. And so he sets up a precaution to guide and to nurture and to care for our souls until ultimately we're with him in perfect community and he guides and nurtures and perfects our souls. And so he sets up this precaution. So remember, it's not just about the schemes of Satan. 
This is about how God overcomes them. And as we'll see next week, schemes overcome will be our finale. And if you don't believe me on this, if this is just a pastor trying to get people to stay at his church, just you know, come here, I'm gonna tell you, you need to be in church, why? Because we need people in church to, to tithe and to keep the thing going. Forget that. Our senior pastor will be the first one to say, I'll help you find another church if this one isn't working out, but I want you to be in a church. It's a very healthy perspective. He has, he has no overlord desire to demand that you be here. We want to, if you've never heard this from a pastor, I want to be one of your pastors. Our staff wants to be your staff. Our church wants to be your church. But if it's not working out for some reason, let us help you not run into isolation, but run into the arms of another family. And it's part of our calling as we're gonna see But if you don't believe me, I wanted to set this up with some Bible. If you heard of the book, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. The author of Hebrews said, look, I know. There's people that say they're in a faith community and they just drop the faith community. I have faith, don't need the community. He says, I know that's the habit of some. He says, but do not neglect to meet together, but encouraging one another. How can you encourage other people if you're not with other people? Bible's not that hard. And all the more as you see the day, big capital D, drawing near. Now, if you want to know what that day looks like, come back next week. We're going to read it. It's going to blow your mind if you haven't read Revelation. It's amazing. I, I get a little too giddy about it. Okay, but there's a capital D for a reason. Okay, and you'll see that next week. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am, the, I am in the midst of them. God says, when you gather, something miraculous will happen. Those are Jesus's words. Colossians three sixteen. I think I've confessed, it's my favorite book, Save Revelation. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Sounds like worship, doesn't it? I have a personal faith, I know. But is there a corporate expression? You go back to Acts 2, it's the birth of the church. Anyone read through Acts? It's literally where the Christian church is born. Before that, it was the Jewish temple. That was God's reign. That was God's people, was through the Jewish nation. And then he birthed the church. And it's no longer about your race. It's no longer about your ethnicity, your bloodline, your tribe. It's no longer about your name. It's about the name of Jesus and what he has done. We are now defined by him, not our law, not our borders, not our race, not our blood, not our creed, not our color, not our name, not our heritage. We're defined singularly by Jesus And if you read Acts 2, you see the birth of the church in the very first verse. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come is when the Holy Spirit is descending. He is literally bathing the church. He is birthing the church. Just as when Jesus was baptized three years earlier, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and he baptized Jesus. That is when the new covenant began. And now the church, as Jesus says, you're going to do greater things than me. He says, it's better that I go. And he says, now there's going to be a church and you're going to have a helper who's going to enable you to do greater things. I've set you up on that question before. So who thinks they can do better things than Jesus? Everyone's like, no, that's heresy. 
And yet Jesus is like, you're going to do better things than me. And we feel bad for taking Jesus at his word. And we don't feel like that's a calling in our life. No, Jesus did everything amazing. I can't do anything. I'm just here. Right? He says, you're going to do better things. The church is going to do better things than he could do as a man confined in the incarnation to the region of Galilee. He couldn't go preach into China, but the church can. He couldn't go global. He couldn't use Facebook for good, but the church can. He didn't have it and we do. And so it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They had gathered. That's how Jesus began his church as a gathering. Verse 40 through 42 says, and with many other words, he testified in exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The Holy Spirit straight adding people to his church. Jesus straight building his own church. Unless he blesses it, we're laboring in vain. Jesus builds his church. No pastor builds a church. No staff builds a church. Jesus builds his church. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 46 through 47, still in Acts 2. says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, large gathering, in the temple, large gathering, and breaking bread house to house, small gathering. Some of you thought the church just came up with that. Let's do corporate worship and small groups. I think that's a good back plan. Where'd you come up with that? I don't know. God. He says in the temple, large corporate gathering. We're not that large over the summer, but this is what we'll call it. My question is, where's your small gathering? Where is it? First century church with all, for all they were messed up. They were birthed in this model and we're still messed up, but we still live under this model. This is God's model, not our model. He says, in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Never let a pastor make you believe that I, we are responsible for the growth of his church. Jesus built his church. If he doesn't build his church, we just simply labor in vain. And then Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, I'm going to bite out a big chunk of this because I like it. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of which the statue of the fullness of Christ to the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and coming in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ from whom the whole body, I need you to pay attention to this. We're going to come back to this constant language of the body, that he is the head from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth for the body for the edifying of itself in love. 
If that's not enough Bible for you, there's nothing I could do beyond that to, con- to, to jolt us into this understanding that God's desire is for his people to be in community with his people. And so we launch into 1 Peter 5. And I wanna show you some of the language that he uses as he puts a call on my life as a pastor, the lives of elders, which the Bible really uses those terms interchangeably. Pastors, elders, you can see how some have different instructions, some different guidance. I've been called to a, a teach, more of a teaching pastor role. I'm, I'm also an elder. I'm not a voting elder just by way of structure of the church doesn't really matter. It's, it's that pastors and elders are used synonymously. And so he says, the elders who are among you, I, is, I exhort, I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says this, says, shepherd the flock. Reoccurring theme in the Bible, is it? Right? Shepherd the flock. Why? It, it reflects Jesus, who is our chief shepherd, guiding his flock. And so our call is to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. I love doing this with my boot campers. I I teach a fitness boot camp at, at, at the university. And on the very first day of every semester, I stand before them and say, I do not do fitness full time. I don't need this job. I want to be here. I want to be here. If they stop paying me, I'll still show up. During finals week, when they don't pay me, I'll still show up. During the summer, if they don't pay me, I'll still show up. I want to be here. Nothing compels me to be here. I have a full-time job that pays me enough money to live. I don't need a shop. I want to be here, and I only want people to be here that want to be here. This isn't by compulsion. I want to be here. I tell the same thing with people on my team at work. I've, I've told employees, look, if you get to a point where you don't want to work here anymore, let me know. I'll help you exit. Like, I'll give you time, I'll help, I'll help guys. Like, I want people who are here, not out of compulsion. Well, I have to go to work. I want you to want to be here. It's telling you, it changes everything. In fitness, in relationships, you want to be here, right? It's not like, oh, I have to go home to my wife. How many just fantasize, your husband says that at work. Oh, I gotta go home and be with my wife because that's part of the deal. So, man, I can't wait to go home and be with my wife, right? That desire, it's not a compulsion or guilt, And we're to shepherd the flock, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And he says flock again. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And so he calls us to flock together. And then notice this. He says, likewise, verse five, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. It doesn't mean receive abuse or go with whatever happens. It means that if I'm submitted to Jesus, you can trust that when you're submitted to me that I'm gonna love and care for you the way that Jesus loves and cares for me. Same thing in marriage, same thing in church. And he says, so to the younger people, he's not like, hey, by the way, if you're under 30, you don't have to go to church. Like that's just not for people after they get married with kids, right? You hear that all the time. I've been ministering to college kids long enough. They're like, well, I sort of figured I'll get back into church at some point. I did that. I dropped out in high school as a pastor's kid. I'm like, I'm not going to church anymore. Done, I'm rebelling. My dad's like, okay, cool. I wanted to fight with him. Yeah, tell me to stay. He's like, no, I can tell you to stay. It, it went south, by the way. I got into dumb stuff, did dumb things. 
But it says to the young people, it's not something that you just get to later. We see it sociologically. You see, you got the faith of your parents, you know, kind of in through high school, plummets in college, absolutely bottoms out in college, kind of just hits this valley. And then it's, it's crazy. Then you get, a, you get your first job and paycheck and it kind of takes an uptick. And some people are like, okay, well, you know, got to start getting in line, you know, do the whole adult thing. And then guess where it starts to go like this again? Guess what happens? Marriage and kids. So you're like, oh shoot, these kids are rebellious little sinners. I, I should, we should probably go to church so I can teach them how to not do what they do all the time, right? And you see it sociologically. It goes like this. It's crazy. But we do that. We're sort of like, well, that's when I'm older with kids. It says younger people be submitted now. Save yourself a ton of destruction. Now, young people. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, which can be particularly potent during Pride Week or month, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. God calls to flock together, but it's not out of fear. He doesn't say flock together because of fear, flock together so that we can be strong. Flock together so that we can be strong. Verse eight, he's gonna show us why. He's gonna say, because there is an apex predator circling you. Anyone watch these videos? Part of me wanted to bring one up. Anyone watch the lion hunting videos? You've seen them at some point. It's usually with like a water buffalo or something. Do you notice that? Always the water buffalo. Okay, just picking on a water buffalo. Why? Because those things make a really good steak in, 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 in Africa. Have you, but have you, seen, have you seen some of these videos? I went back through them again. I was thinking about pulling one up, but I didn't. Have you ever noticed that when the water buffalo stick together, they're impenetrable? And it's not that the lions go after the weak. It's that they go after the isolated. And, and if you watch, you can just YouTube it tonight or right now if you're super bored with the sermon on your phone. And, and you can just take a look at some of the times that lions have, as an entire pride, found an isolated calf or an isolated buffalo. And they literally jump on them. Like the thing is over and then more buffalo show up. There's one famous video of a water buffalo, no joke, walking up and they've got their crazy like hook horns, trots up to a lion that's getting down on one of his friends, hooks the lion and flings him 10 feet in the air. I should have showed that video. Now I'm all pumped on it and I don't have it. It was, it's absolutely insane. Two of them trot up, hooks that thing, lion, no joke like this. All of them made it out. This was not a weak buffalo. This wasn't isolated buffalo and the pride attacked time and time and time again you see that it's not just the weak it's the isolated and he says there is an apex predator there is the great white shark of land circling you you don't flock together out of fear flock together because it creates strength And so God calls us to flock together. Satan tries to tear us apart. And as I said, if he can get us alone and isolated, he can amplify all the other schemes one-on-one. And so here I want to give us three lies. We're going to go into the the rest of the passage, but I want to give you three lies that Satan 
may have already, or his demons may have already whispered into your ear at some point. I probably could have kept going, but as you know, I'm long-winded. So I went in three. And I went with them because I actually, I, I want it, because I think these are, are the, the closest. And I could have done some from my personal experience, but I think these are the closest to what almost everyone here is at some point. Correct me if I'm wrong. The first one being, you just need more alone time. You need some solitude. You need some you time, some me time. It's not purposed prayer and devotion with Jesus. It's time with yourself. You need time with you. You need to get things worked out for you. You need to learn to love yourself before you can love anyone else. It says you just need more alone time. And it's not time spent pursuing and listening to God through prayer and through the reading of his word. It's alone time with your words, with your thoughts, with your desires. And that's a great place for him to start a fire. And Satan will use this lie of you just need more alone time to isolate you. Number two, it's too risky. Let me explain. Some of you may be here because you were at another church and it got real and you got hurt. You were in community. You invested in the lives of the others. They invested in your life and and in some way, shape or form, you opened up and they dropped the ball. They embarrassed you. They, they ravaged you. They ridiculed you. They, they, they went too far in some way, shape, or form. It got real, and you got hurt. And so you left, and maybe you're here because you want that checkbox. You still have an inkling of a desire for community, but at the same time, you're saying it's too risky. I hear what you say, and I'm here on a Sunday, but the small group thing, I've tried that. It doesn't work, so I'm not in. But I'll do this, but I won't do that because it's too risky for me. It's true that there is risk involved. I, I want to be upfront with you. I'm not going to tell you that you get into a small group at our church. There's no risk. There's always risk when humans are involved. Have you notice that? Have you notice that? You will if you haven't already. There's always risk when humans are involved. Humans will fail you. You will fail other humans. We serve a God that will never fail. But we will fail each other. And perhaps you know about community, but you don't want to be known by a community. Echoing back to Jesus's words, it says, depart from me. I never knew you. You knew about me, but I didn't know you. We weren't in fellowship together. It is risky, but I'll tell you this, the risk of being in community pales in comparison to the risk of being outside of it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying that I haven't hurt people at this church. I'm not saying that I haven't been hurt by people at this church. What I'm saying is that it's worth it to endeavor through it, knowing that Jesus will be faithful to both parties until the end. And so the risk of being in community pales in comparison to the risk of being outside of it. And Satan will use this lie of it's too risky to isolate you. And by the way, you can have a ton of friends. You can even go to church and be entirely isolated. Some of you may feel that tonight. You're here, like I'm in a corporate gathering, and yet you're not known by a single person in the room. You know of other people, but you're not known by those people. You know other people, but you don't know other people. And it's a lie that will be used to isolate. Number three, 
I got to develop this one a bit more. It's a little bit more broad. It says you can have freedom without community. You can do this. It's perhaps the easiest to believe in my summation because we're a hyper-individualistic DIY American culture. Do it yourself. Cabinets, Pinterest, faith, whatever. Do it yourself. DIY. You are a self-made man, yet you still can't figure out what part of yourself you made. Right? I am a DIY kind of gal. But that's not how faith works. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of the body and the body is the church. Have you ever noticed how a body part cannot act autonomously? Have you ever noticed this? I'll give you an example. If your head says, because all smart heads say we should go to Chipotle. Okay. So if your head says we should go to Chipotle, have you ever noticed that the leg can't say, eh, I'm good. I'm staying back. Right. The head says we're moving here. The leg doesn't get to say, well, it's cool. I'm going to stay back here. Bring me back the steak. It can't operate autonomously. Americans say the silliest things when it comes to Christians not in community. We say, even as those that are in community, we say the silliest things. Here's three, because I like threes. Well, maybe their previous church heard them. So that's why they're on their own. I get it. I understand it. It's fine. Well, maybe they just need some time to be with God. Hear that one? My faith, I'm, I'm, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. I don't need a relationship with the church. Honestly, I heard that a lot in college. And as, as a wannabe Christian apologist, I honestly had no, I had no way to refute that. I'm personally saved by Jesus. Why do I need the church? For the band. I don't know. Like, why? Like, <laughs> do you have live music at your house? Like, I don't know. Like, well, maybe they just need some time away from God. Maybe they don't need a church right now. Maybe they're at a point in their spiritual growth where they're really mature. They're coming off the mission field. They're coming out of college. Maybe they don't need it right now, but they'll get it in the future. Now, imagine if you're on your way to Chipotle, like all good and smart people are doing at some point is going to Chipotle, right? You wouldn't say, if you came across a severed hand on the road, you wouldn't say, well, maybe the hand was hurt by the body and it needed some time away. Would you? It's kind of ridiculous, but the Bible continuously uses this body analogy for a reason. You wouldn't say, well, maybe the hand just needs some alone time. It doesn't need the rest of the body right now. It needs to find a little me time. It needs to learn to love itself before it can hang out with the legs, right? We laugh. Shouldn't we be laughing about, not laughing at Christians, but shouldn't we be laughing at the notion that it's fine when Christians are severed from the body? Shouldn't we be laughing at the fact that we perhaps at some point, myself included, have thought that we, des- we deserved some time away from the body because they hurt me, they were hypocrite, it's that and the other. Welcome to the team. Wouldn't we laugh when it says, well, maybe the hand doesn't need the rest of the body. The severed hand will rot and die. And a severed Christian will rot and die. And cutting yourself off from community cuts you off from Jesus's work in and through the body that he heads. Jesus is the head of a body. Use, a, look, you, use me as the illustration. If Jesus says, I'm like this, and you're like all these glorious joints that are sewn together here, part of me wants to say, how dare we think, but I'll just be over there while the body is doing this. Jesus says, this is the analogy. This is the picture. Look, you're, you might be the thumb and I might be the pinky. We're different, we're weird. You're bigger boned. I don't know, like, okay, <laughs> I can't do much, okay? 
but together a body can do amazing things. And it's this protective measure that God sets up because verse eight, he gives us the why. He never leaves us without the why. Hey, go to church. Why? Don't worry about it. Just do it. Hey, go run around in a flock. Why? Why can't I roll solo? You know why? Have you watched lions hunt? It's amazing. Have you, these, these, who, my, my, my baby girl just saw a lion for the first time. I posted it on Instagram. Her face was no joke. She was like, <gasps> like at the Santa Barbara Zoo. She was just, oh, that's not the cat that I know. That looks like a really big, vicious cat. Have you ever watched, the, have you ever seen how low those big lions can get to the ground when they're hunting? Have you ever seen how quiet they can operate? How much discipline? And watch one video where there was a, a baby calf walking up, there's just a thin brush of weeds and the lion is down and he just had so much discipline to wait. He's like, this dumb little baby's coming closer. He could have jumped out and caught it. And he's like, no, come, come on, come on, come on. They're so good. They are apex predator. There's nothing above them. They are the top of the food chain. The Bible says Satan is that. He is an apex predator. And he's going to say, it says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks around like a roaring house cat. No, like a meowing, domesticated, short hair feline. No, a roaring lion. He is untamed and hell bent on destruction. That's why the Holy Spirit who authored the Bible used those words. He didn't even go one notch down in the food chain. Like, oh, he's a cougar. No, he's a lion. He is the king of the pride. The animal, all other animals will fear. He says he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his desire is to steal Everything that you hold dear, ravage your life and kill your joy. That is what Satan does. You've heard that every week because every week it's true. He has several tactics he'll deploy against you, but that is his goal. Hell bent on the absolute ravaging and destruction of your joy. And we tend to think that our small issues will stay tamed, that he will not be able to exacerbate the small issues. Satan will act like a domesticated cat. He will snicker, he will lie, he will tempt, he will lure about our small issues. But know that he has every intent of isolating and amplifying so that he may kill and destroy. Eventually, the lion will come out. Think about Judas. You guys remember Judas? The man described in all the gospels as a man who had what appears to be a small issue with money. Wanted to be the money changer, right? We all know Judas. If there was a little extra money, he would keep it for himself. Not a big deal. Just a little little percentage, a little little penny from the tray at 7-Eleven. No worries, fine. Good. That's what it's there for. No one knows. It's accounted for paid their taxes, a little extra. When the poor woman washed Jesus' feet with the oil, Judas was the one that said, hey, couldn't that have been used to help the poor? He, he had this little thing, 
that Satan would use as a big thing. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. His life was destroyed and he killed himself. Like, wow, escalated quickly. It does. It does. What seems to be small, Satan will use to ravage your life. And when you get into tighter fellowship, it's one of the ways that, that people speaking into your life can, 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 put a, a, can squash some of those small things before they're used for big things. So what is it for you that could be a small thing that you're like, I'm fine, it's under control, it's tame, it's like an annoying cat. That upon perhaps this teaching, your own reflections, your prayer time with Jesus, you may see that Satan could be working in and through you to amplify that is it a love of money? Just just wanting to get ahead? Just if I get I'll tell you this, I've worked my way up the corporate ladder. I'll tell you, every time I get a big a big raise, it lasts about forty-eight hours, and then I'm already thinking, like, but what if I what if I had double that? California mortgage ain't cheap. I'll tell you, there's an there isn't a rich person that's satisfied with their money. Right? We've seen it. In fact, the more money you get statistically, less satisfied you are. I'm not saying I've, I've taught on work. I've taught on profit. I've taught on all that sort of stuff. If you got questions about it, let me know. But what I'm saying is that this, this little desire for money over a lifetime can then be used to ravage your family and become workaholic. Is it accumulation of possession? Ladies, do you shop to relieve stress? Do you, do you find your, your comfort in buying when you feel like life is losing control? Do you use the mall to rein in your own control? to bring in something new to the mix that makes you feel more worthy? Is it one more drink? One is fine, two is, you know, cool. Do you have to have the next one? Ah, sometimes people see I get a little spacey, I get a little crazy for the married, oh, my kids kind of know, I get a little different, I get a little weird. Is it, is it one more drink that, God, that, that Satan could ultimately use to ravage your family and your life and your career? Is it watching just a little inappropriate something online? It's free. I found a free clip. I'm not, I'm not doing anything. I'm not touching anyone. I'm not paying for anything. I'll tell you this. I do digital marketing for a living. Those are what's called impressions and views, and that's why advertisers pay. You are. No, I, watch, I just watched the free clips. Yep, you're generating money. I'm not paying. I didn't say that said you're, you're, you're generating revenue for those websites because advertisers look at impressions and views and then pay into those. And we know that porn, prostitution, stripping, sex trafficking is all intertwined. You don't get to separate them anymore. It's a flat horizon. All those are intertwined. Used to be guys were really the only ones struggling with this. Ladies, your numbers are skyrocketing. It's like you're trying to catch up. Don't just look at the guys, you perverts. I've seen the numbers. By the way, the numbers don't bode well for pastors either. I was in a 17-year addiction with porn. That's why I bang on it. That's why I, I thump it, because I was there. God freed me at the age of 30. I'm, only, I'm 36. I'm only six years out of that from the time I was a teenager. And it, it, it perverted my view of women. It perverted my desire and my, my, my intent in marriage. It perverted the way that I related to women. It perverted in and out of almost every relationship it skewed. And even modern secular science is catching up with this. They like post these articles. Oh, it turns out like men that view porn a lot can't really relate to women in a, in a normal way. No freaking kidding. 
It's a little thing, just a little, just a couple clips here and there, rough day. It can break relationships. Is it self-medication? Is it going a little bit further physically with your boyfriend or girlfriend? What's the little thing? And here, as we get into this roaring line, here's two dangers in belief about devils and demons. You saw from C.S. Lewis that one is to not believe they exist. The other one is to have a, just an unceasing fascination with them. I studied demonology for about a year and I had to constantly remind myself that I'm not to focus. I, I, like I do a lot of things for like a year. I studied Roman Catholicism for a year. I studied cults for a year. I studied demonology for a year. I do like year long personal studies. Just kind of, it's not all day, every day by any means. But during that demonology thing, I had to constantly suppress this desire because I'm super fascinated. They were constantly approaching Jesus. Jesus talked about demons more than anyone. He encountered demons more than anyone. But he says, look, you can't disregard that they exist, but you can't have this crazy fascination with them too. But there's two dangers in not grasping the severity of 1 Peter 5, 8. One is that you would underestimate your enemy and he would devour you. Two is that you would overestimate your enemy and live in fear for the rest of your life. So I, I want no one to come out of this series underestimating the tactics, the power, the influence of the devil. Nor do I want you coming out of the series being absolutely freaked out that you can't live because guess what he'll do? He'll use that scare in you to steal your joy. Either way, he's after your joy. You don't believe they exist and he can have influence on you. You're not going to have your joy. If you overestimate and are living complete, utter fear, he can steal your joy. And the number one command in the Bible, does anyone know what the number one command in the Bible is? My clothing company is getting ready to do a shirt that just says two words on it. It's going to have a dude standing on a motorcycle like this. There's a thing called surfing. I don't know if you guys have heard of motorcycles. You pop up onto your seat. You actually are on a motorcycle headed down freeway streets, and you stand up, and you go like this. It's called surfing. Maybe your foot on the tank. We're going to have two words on that, on that shirt, and all the moto communities are going to be like, yes, and it's the number one command in the Bible. Do you know what the number one oft-repeated command in the Bible is? Fear not. Fear not. So I'm going to put a motorcycle guy and I'm going to have the Bible written on as many chests in the moto community as I can possibly find. Okay. Holy smokes. I'm going to use that every time I preach now. I'm so going to use that tidbit. 300 and for the people of the video, 365 times in the Bible, one for every year. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. And so the number one command is fear not. And God's promises are greater. I want to finish this passage. I want to show you how he ends. Because he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. He says, you're a flock. The, the image is a shepherd and a flock. It is a group. It is not isolated pods. You get together in large community. You get together in small community. You attack the small things before they become large things. He says, you flock, pastor, shepherd, as Jesus shepherds you, you shepherd the flock. And he says this, he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He says, he will come after you. Satan will attack you because you're on the field. 
Going back to the first week, there's no reason a football has a defense that goes after the guys on the bench. They don't hike the ball and hightail it and go knock out the water boy. What do they do? They have to stay on the field with those who are advancing a mission. And so if you're not being attacked, chances are you might not be on the field. I know that's tough, but it's true. I never experienced demonic oppression until I was asked to begin praying about ministry. Never. I can say that. I, just, I always thought those people were weird, like demonic suppression. Like, come on, seriously? What movie is this? And then you get on the field and suddenly they're looking at you and they're coming after you and they're deploying tactics in a playbook against you. He says, resist. He says, you're in good company. There's brotherhoods around the world that are being attacked as well. He says, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And here's where his promises come in. And so do not be ruled by fear. Fear not. Overcome them in what Jesus has done to overcome them. And he gives us four. He says, his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He says, perfect. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I've explained this time and time again, and I am so happy to do it again. Because the Bible says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And we're like, but I'm still sinning. And we went through it earlier in the series where we talk about our position of righteousness and our process of righteousness. Our position is perfect if you've taken off your robe of wickedness and put on Jesus's cloak of righteousness, God sees you as perfect in your position of righteousness. He says, if you're in Jesus, hundreds of times in the Bible, it says in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus. He just says Christian like twice. It's not a title. It's something we're in. It says, if you're in Jesus, your position of righteousness is perfect. Now your process has flaws. You go through the process of righteousness and sanctification. You're like, but I'm still sinning. You need to understand that God sees you as perfect, though you are being perfected. That's why he says, for by one offering, he has perfected those who are being sanctified. This is a process. This is a position. What Satan wants you to do is question your position based on your process. He says, look, you're stumbling. I don't think you're saved. The Holy Spirit says, you are saved. You don't have to stumble. He speaks to us from our position. Satan says, because of your process, your position is flawed. Holy Spirit says, no, I understand your process is flawed, but your position is perfect. And you can rest in that. He says, perfect. He says, establish. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I want you to know that your faith was a gift. I want you to rest in that. Your faith was a gift and he who's been placed in the father's hand, no man can remove. You are established, written in the lamb's book of life for all of eternity. Though you struggle in your process, you have been established in your position. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is shocking language because priests in the Old Testament walked all day. 
back forth. They would take an animal from a person. They would have their sins confessed. They would walk it in. They would sacrifice it. And they would walk back and forth and back and forth. And you're back again, Tom. Wow, good to see you again. And then they would go back forward and Jane, I can't believe you. Wow, it's poor lambs. And they would go back and forth and they would walk back and forth. Unceasingly, Jesus came in, slaughtered once and he sat down. Established, it says strengthen. First Timothy 1, 12 through 13 says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. I love this. There's a lot about God strengthening. I went to first Timothy one for this reason. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into his service. He says, you know why I'm strengthened? Because I get to serve people. And if you're not in community, you don't get to know the, understand the glory of serving people and the chaos and the chaos. But he says, he has strengthened me because he called me into his service. Then he says, settle. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And if any of you are struggling with, or struggling with joy, I was talking with two ladies at the end of last week that were talking about joy and, and the, the dichotomy between happiness and joy. Read, 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 read Philippians. It's known as the epistle of joy. And joy is that safety net that when your happiness plummets, joy is a safety net that catches you. Things suck in this world sometimes. I'm not talking about being happy. I'm not preaching the happy gospel. I hate the happy gospel because then when I'm not happy, I feel like the gospel is flawed, right? Like, well, I'm just not happy like everyone else at church. It's not happiness. Happiness is great. I'm not anti-happy. I hate the happiness gospel because it's predicated on being happy all the time and I'm not happy all the time, but I have every day a growing joy in the safety net of what Jesus has done. And when my happiness plummets, it catches me. And he says, be settled. So Philippians 4, 6 or 7 says, be anxious for nothing. And in the original language, nothing means nothing. But in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. People are like, I don't get it. I'm like, I know. <laughs> That's my favorite part is that I don't have to get it all. And I like getting a lot of stuff. I like diving into my dumb little studies. It's not dumb, but I make them about me more often, needing my answers. And I love that. It's like, you're just going to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. They're like, I don't get it, but I have joy. Like, That's what the Bible talks about. Which surpasses all understanding. will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Satan's plan is to divide you, to isolate you, and then to devour you. God's plan is to unite us, minister to us, and bring life within us. And then he ends. He says to him, see, this is for our good, but you need to know that this is for, it says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Community is for our good and for his glory. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, um, thank you for the conviction in my own life um, in, in preparation. I, I pray that, that we were softened, myself included, softened by the call 
not, not hardened or callous to it, but that we would see the beauty in our opportunity to reflect you and to reflect the heavenly reality now. We so often wish that people would see God the way that we see him, and yet we often refuse to do the things you call us to do on earth so that they can see what you're like. And so I pray for a restored understanding in our own hearts and minds about this call to community and the beauty of it. It's not for our good. It's not for for pastors. It's not for the church. It's not for bank accounts and budgets and buildings and chairs and butts in the pews. It's for your glory. It's to to show a picture of heaven on earth. And we're gonna go into a time of worship. And I pray that we would all be restored in that understanding that this is practice for worship, that we would attack worship as preparation for an eternal reality. So Jesus, be glorified in, in the large gatherings and the small gatherings. Shepherd this flock, Jesus, as we're called to shepherd the flock. We have an enemy, but better than our enemy is our Savior. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would be magnified in this time, that we would press into you, we would rely on you, and that we would sing to you, a risen King, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.